Thank you, Clarence. I can hear you clearly today. So <laughs> glad you all are here. Thankful for you. I do want to, to take a moment to encourage you in particular to attend the Sunday Night Theology this month when Stan Gale teaches. If you don't know Stan, Stan pastored in our area for 25, 30 years, just a few blocks from our church. Uh, and as important as his pastoral ministry, God has given him a writing ministry. Stan is a gifted writer, has written many books that are a great service to the church. This month, uh, he'll be dealing with spiritual warfare. And the reason I want to encourage you toward that is I know you all have questions about that. And some of us read less helpful resources than others. And Stan is a trusted brother and teacher, has written a great resource for us on spiritual warfare. One of them is short and a little more accessible. You could probably read it this week with your devotions. The other's a little more lengthy, but I'd encourage you to pick that up and to be ready to be here on the last Sunday of this month. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word keeping it open the whole time as we study the Scripture together. If you're not very familiar uh, with the Bible, large numbers are chapter numbers, small numbers are verse numbers, and you should be able to find First Peter somewhere around page 1014 on a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. If you do not have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, please take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you can read and study. We're going to focus our attention on First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, but what I'd like to do is actually take a moment and just back us up, and we're going to read in chapter 4 and then some in chapter 5 today. And as we're reading in particular in our verses in chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, I want you to circle every time you see the word humble or humility. And I want you to think with me, so this is just a little extra, all of this came on the front row, so this, I didn't know where to put it in the sermon on the fly, so I'm giving it on the front end. Little, what's helpful for us to think about is why Peter has given us this admonition for humility in the midst of a section where he's been encouraging them in suffering. He's been encouraging them, saying, you are going to suffer. Verse 12, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We've acknowledged over the last several weeks that we are often surprised. We're surprised by suffering. It's not what we expect as believers. And so... He encourages us to not be surprised, and then he reminds us in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And the very first group of people that he mentions after he tells us that, of entrusting themselves to a faithful creator, are the elders of the church, chapter 5, verse 1. Right after that exhortation to elders, he backs out again, and he speaks to all of us this morning and says, be humble. Right before he goes into a text on spiritual warfare. The reason all of that's there for you is there's something that we need to pay attention to and you need to reflect on where there's a connection between following your leaders and them being who they're supposed to be in Christ and your ability to resist sin and flee from the devil. Being humble Right there in the middle of that. So I'm, I don't know much about fixing things. You can ask any of the handy guys around here, but I think I know how a hinge works. It swings. There's something on, and maybe I'm wrong about that, so they can correct me later. I'm pretty sure that's what it does. But when we think of it being on a hinge here, there's something about this humility and what it means to follow those leaders, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and our ability to resist the devil in verses 8 and following, our ability to be alert and to flee from sin. 
All right, all of that's preamble. We're going to begin reading now in chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me now in our time together, that you would guard my mouth, and that you would help me to recall what I've prepared, and that you would help these people, my friends, members of this church, that they might be able to listen to your word. We pray, Father, that you would write the eternal truths of your word on our hearts, that all of us would leave here today people who are more humble and more holy, more dependent upon your Christ, that we would understand more completely and more accurately what it means to be a people who are submissive to our leaders and are prepared to fight the devil and resist sin. Father, we ask that you would help us to be a people who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing in your sight. And as the apostle highlights for us this morning, One aspect of that is to be a humble people. We ask, Father, that you would teach us. We ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Been reading through the Lord of the Rings with our kids over evening times right now before they go to bed, and everything in Middle-earth changes, for those of you who know the story, when that golden ring falls into the fires of Mount Doom. Sauron is vanquished, the power of evil is broken, and hope dawns anew. It only takes a few seconds at the end of the narrative for everything to change, but the journey to get there was long and perilous. Frodo Baggins, a lowly hobbit, had to carry the corrupting one ring because it would destroy anybody else. His humility is actually what qualifies him for the task. 
He's the one no one expects to be carrying the ring. Frodo did not set out on the journey to save Middle-earth. And it is actually only in response to Gandalf's revelation that Sauron was seeking the ring, searching for the ring with all of his being, that Frodo simply does the task in front of him. He's full of valor, but he's motivated by a resolute determination to do what is right and to remove this peril from his beloved shire. His humble love for home and hearth and the other hobbits who are traveling with him actually sustains him through all of his suffering. Even though the ending of the Tolkien's classic, The Lord of the Rings, isn't entirely happy, we rejoice when we read this story or watch this story because something has been made right. The humble finally triumphs over the power-hungry. Peace now extends across the entire land. And we long for that to happen in our world. So these lowly hobbits help us comprehend something deep in our hearts, the beauty of humility and the horror of self-serving power. The very two truths that Peter is presenting to us in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Willing shepherds make healthy churches, and God bestows His favor on those who humble themselves. Notice first the peril of pride. Look with me again at the end of verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. The appeal for humility extends to everyone in the community, regardless of age, gender, or ethnicity. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. We notice in chapter 5, verse 1, that he's speaking specifically to the elders. And then in chapter 5, verse 5, at the beginning, he's speaking specifically to those who are younger. He's charging the elders in the church to be a certain way. And those who are younger and probably think themselves less likely to need this leadership to submit themselves. And then he fans back and says, everybody, absolutely everybody is to be the type of person who is humbling themselves. According to Peter, one thing that we can be sure of is that we all need to work on humility. And it really is amazing to think today that no matter who hears these words right now or who reads this text later, in varying degrees, is prideful. So we have to ask ourselves, if God actually does bestow His favor on all who humble themselves, how do we get humility? By verse 5, clothing ourselves with it. Now surely at this point, Peter is reminding the suffering community of something that he has seen taking place in his life. If you have your Bible, I want you to flip with me to John chapter 13. As Peter reflects upon how Jesus clothed himself when he knew his hour of suffering had come upon him. John chapter 13, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking the towel, tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. On the evening that he was betrayed, right before he was publicly humiliated, John tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hand, knowing that he's actually come from God, knowing that he's going back to God, notice the certainty. He rises from supper. He clothes himself with humility for the benefit of others by filling the basin and picking up the towel and washing the disciples' feet. Humility toward one another serves. Notice what Peter does not say. Peter does not give us a list of ways that we just need to be humble because we'll be better people. Peter tells us in this exhortation that humility is to be others-directed. Humility is to be toward others. Humility is to serve others. Humility is to do something for the advantage or the sake or the benefit of other people. Or as Michael Card so eloquently phrased it in his song, The Basin and the Towel. In an upstairs room, a parable is just about to come alive. And while they bicker about who's the best, with painful glance, he'll silently rise. Their Savior servant must show them how, through the will of the water and the tenderness of the towel. And the call is to community, the impoverished power that sets the soul free, in humility to take the vow. That day after day, we may take up the basin and the towel. In any ordinary place, on any ordinary day, the parable can live again, when one will kneel and one will yield. Our Savior's servant must show us how, through the will of the water and the tenderness of the towel. And the space between ourselves sometimes is more than the distance between the stars. He's referring to pride. By the fragile bridge of the servant's bow, we take up the basin and the town. Brothers and sisters, Peter, like Michael Card and Jesus before him, teaches us that humility is to be toward others and to serve. The very thing a suffering community would be prone to forget as they are alienated and ostracized and humiliated for their faith in Christ. They would be prone to forget that they are to serve others because suffering for our faith can be distracting. It makes us bitter. It hardens our hearts. It paralyzes our will. It turns us inward so that we're thinking primarily about ourselves and our suffering and our adverse circumstances and the hardships that we face that we no longer see the people who are around us. Suffering often keeps us from seeing opportunities that God is placing around us where we can do spiritual good to others and share the gospel with them. At times we're tempted and prone to forget proclaiming the gospel because we are so crushed by the sins of others against us. We're so exhausted by bodily pain. We're so emotionally expent from attempts to reconcile broken relationships. Suffering requires all of our attention, and it drains all of our resources, and it makes us feel that we have nothing else to give. And Peter knew that. So he tells us, as these people are prone to turn inward, to look outward in humility... They are to clothe themselves 
with humility toward one another. And he tells us why. Look at verse 5. For God opposes the proud. Peter's reason is simple and direct. Active opposition. God opposes even proud sufferers. And notice the people that he's speaking to are not the high and the exalted in this moment, but the very people that make up the congregation just like this, the very people who in a room like this would have been suffering for their faith. Peter tells them that their pride, even when they're suffering, invites active opposition from God. People who think that they know better or deserve better or deserve more or have earned an exemption find themselves on the wrong side of God when they are blinded to the need of others in the midst of their suffering because of their suffering. Peter tells us suffering is a ministry, not a millstone. It's a gift, not a glitch in God's sovereign plan. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you see your suffering as a unique opportunity with you, for you to clothe yourselves with humility toward other people? Or do you see your suffering primarily as something by which you can complain about? Do you see your suffering as a unique opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ to unbelievers? Because I can assure you that they are watching you, especially when you're suffering. They are listening. And what will they see and what will they hear? Unbelievers want to see how believers suffer as they answer basic questions for themselves. How is this person able to endure? How well can their belief system bear under the pressure of an unasked for turn of providence in their life? Does their humility survive their suffering? Or were they only humble when everything was going their way? But now that God has introduced adverse circumstance, they resist and are proud. The world sees suffering primarily as a negative thing. But as we've been reading through 1 Peter, we see that Peter has been telling us that suffering gives us an enormous opportunity to catch people off guard, to make them question their understanding of affliction, to make them question their understanding of the gospel, to make them question what it is that actually motivates and drives the people of God, as well as how a person is able to persevere through suffering. And Peter tells us, that smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns themselves with humility. Now, if you're like me, you've probably have thought at another point in your life, that person is really proud. At which point, if you're honest with yourself, you have to recognize that it requires some measure of pride on your part to evaluate that in the other person's life. Peter says... All of you are to clothe yourselves with humility, not to identify the pride, but a humility toward others that serves others, that models what we see in the life of Christ. Humility is the oil that allows the relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly, because as our brother Isaac Adams reminded us when he was here last year, beloved, in this church, there are probably people who are bearing patiently with you. The peril of pride 
ensnares us, even believers, when we're suffering for the sake of the gospel. But we see that God bestows His favor on those who humble themselves, whether they are of high estate or low estate. Notice second, the promise of humility. Look at the end of verse 5 with me. We'll read the whole thing. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We see something of what Peter means in Luke's gospel when Jesus contrasted the proud prayer of the Pharisee with the tax collector's humble confession of sin. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now just... Take a moment and think about the types of things that we might say in our day. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Proud. Homosexuals. Those who commit abortions. Democrats. Whatever it is that you find offensive. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast saying... God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The humility of which Peter speaks is that of the tax collector. It's not simply a winsome graciousness by which he wins over the room, It's a humility of repentance, of despairing of self. It is a distrust of self that actually turns to God in saving faith and turns to God in suffering. The humility Peter tells us of actually draws the grace of the sovereign God when it accepts the suffering of God, the suffering that God has ordained as his will instead of resisting and chafing against his will. Now just think of the section, verse 12 of chapter 4. Do not be surprised. Therefore, be humble. Don't be surprised. Receive what God has given for your life. Be humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. This is not taking God by surprise. It should not take you by surprise. When you are humiliated in this life, what you have to look forward to is a, a receiving the grace of God from him personally. Peter teaches us that God helps those who humble themselves. God is personally and providentially supportive of the humble, and God actively opposes the proud. Friends, when we humble ourselves, we experience the grace of God. The promise of humility is grace because God bestows his favor on those who humble themselves. But Peter does not make any promise of that happening in this life. 
In fact, throughout the rest of the section, if you just look down in verses 9 and 10 and following, Peter reminds us that he's pointing us forward. When will you receive that grace? When will you receive that exaltation? When will you receive that blessing? In the age to come. The peril of pride ensnares us even when we're suffering for righteousness' sake. The promise of humility is receiving the grace of God. Notice third, divine reversal. Look with me in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The exhortation from Peter to humble ourselves tells these elect exiles that they must accept the state of humiliation imposed on them. In one sense by unbelievers, and in another and more profound sense by God Himself, God, verse 6, His mighty hand moves them toward humility. God's hand humbled Israel, it purged the rebels out, it brought them to repentance, it sent them into exile, but Peter speaks of God's hand for another reason. He's reminding these elect exiles of God's power to lift up the humble. In God's own time, when the chief shepherd appears, humble believers will share his glory, something Peter knew well. Peter had boasted, though everyone deny you, I will not deny you, before he denied Christ. He promised that he would remain true when no one would remain true, and then suffering came his way. And from the height of that pride, he fell into the abyss of denial. Was there ever a morning when the crowing of a rooster did not remind Peter of his own denial of Christ? Yet, as we saw last week, though Peter had been chastened and humbled, he had been restored His pride had cast him down, and in God's good timing, he had lifted him up. And now Peter reminds these elect exiles, though they are being humiliated, though they are suffering for their faith, though there is hardship in this life, that the Lord will exalt them in his own good time. The promise of humility is a divine reversal because God bestows his favor on those who humble themselves. The peril of pride the promise of humility, divine reversal. Notice fourth, divine care. Look with me in verse 7. Casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The sound of the rooster at dawn brought another memory to Peter. If you go back and you read the gospel narratives, you'll see that as he's in the high priest's house and he hears that rooster crow, One of the astonishing scenes is that it tells us that Jesus met his gaze. And in those moments, I think Peter knew that despite the fact that he had denied Jesus, Jesus cared for him. Humiliated and humbled, what he sees is the loving gaze of his Lord and now urges these people, cast all of your anxieties on him. And notice the connection for Peter between humility and anxiety. An anxiety that worries and thinks, it's out of control. God can't take care of this. I need to do it myself. I need to resolve the situation. And the connection between the humility that depends upon God and entrusts itself to God, that actually shows itself to be humble by casting all of the anxieties on God, recognizing 
It can't handle the problems of life. It can't bear up under the weight of the burdens. And it pushes them all across the table to the Lord. The Lord in prayer, the Lord practically trusting in his divine plan, even when we do not see it. Peter doesn't just cite a verse here. Peter cites a verse in context, helping us see what he's trying to communicate. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. If you go back and you read Psalm 55 this afternoon, the psalmist's anxieties arise from the attacks of his close friends. And the promise that Peter highlights is particularly relevant for these people. He's calling for humility in situations of hostility, in situations of betrayal, in situations of persecution. Precisely in such situations when Christians are tempted to react in pride, I don't deserve this. Something better should be for me. Or perhaps even, as Peter did, to try to take control of the situation and draw the sword. But it is such pride that the promise of the Lord dispels. Christians can entrust themselves to the Lord, to His mighty hand, to His faithfulness, as He cares for them in all of their concerns. How do believers humble themselves? Casting it all upon Him. And notice the astonishing promise. Because He cares for you. Brothers and sisters, one of the most devastating things about the anxieties of our lives is that we think that God does not see and that God does not care. And Peter wants to assure the believer that God sees and God cares. In fact, God sees and God cares and all is happening according to God's providential plan. Nothing has ever happened to you that has fallen outside of what He has decreed for your life. That doesn't make the suffering enjoyable, but that does make the suffering bearable for the believer as we look forward and hope to receiving the grace of God and the exaltation that He alone provides for His people. The promise of the humility is one of divine care because God bestows His favor on those who humble themselves. He cares for you. His mighty hand is both loving and powerful. In his famous essay on fairy stories, Tolkien describes the core of the fantasy genre. He says, Fairy stories were plainly but not primarily concerned with possibility but not with desirability. If they awaken the desire, satisfying it while it often wetting the unbearable appetite for it, they succeeded. What makes the difference here is that we grow to deeply love these stories. And as it relates to the Lord of the Rings, the hobbits, despite their loathliness, we love them because of their humility, and we love them despite their humility. They awaken a desire for us in a world in which humility triumphs. Tolkien's biographers, Philip and Carol Zelinsky, described how the theme of humility echoes throughout the entirety of the Lord of the Rings. The corrupt figures, Sauron the Dark Lord and Sauron the Wizard, cannot bear to accept their own diminishment. They are consumed by a disease and a will to power and by the wrath and envy of their failure to provoke it. In contrast, the faithful among the Valar and the elves and the men accept their place in the created order, and they humbly repent when they err. Gladriel, the visionary elven queen, with the light of the two trees in her golden hair, has so far conquered her will as to refuse the one ring when Frodo offers it to her, and to declare in words reminiscent of John the Baptist, I will diminish and go into the west. 
and remain Galadriel. We see the beauty of humility when we read the series, or as C.S. Lewis helped us see, true humility is not in thinking less of yourself, but in thinking of yourself less. The tendency to be preoccupied with ourselves is a sure sign of pride, a heart inverted on itself to cultivate pride. It expresses itself with a fixation on itself, even in suffering. The selfishness is expressed in worry, anxiety, thin skin, gossip, slander, lying, being afraid of who others think that you are, laziness, being a workaholic, harshness, a relentless clinging to your own rights. It's a preoccupation with the self. Lewis, like Tolkien, like Peter, is encouraging humility, and he tells us to throw, it off, to throw off all of the pride. So what are some ways that we can throw off the pride? Just a few things for us this morning. First, humility serves others, especially the members of our church. Are you serving the other members of this church? Are you serving in ministries on Sunday morning? Are you serving them in prayer? Are you serving them in those discrete moments of their lives? Are you putting on humility by serving other members of the church? Notice that Peter wants us to see that we also, also apply this to our lives, where humility leads to an exaltation, not by coming down from how high, but by trusting in God when we are low. Third, humility hands all of its worries over to God. Fourth, Believers humble themselves by casting their worries on God because He cares. And fifth, believers prepare to fight sin by humbling themselves, which is exactly what this table reminds us of this morning. The sin must be dealt with in our lives, which is precisely why Jesus came. He was born in poverty. He was betrayed by a friend. He was condemned by His countrymen. He was beaten by religious leaders. He was mocked by the soldiers. He was abandoned by those closest to him. He was murdered by the most powerful on the earth. And as he hung on the cross in shame and glory, he endured the justice of God that we deserve because of our sin. None of this happened to Jesus by chance. He was humiliated. The Bible tells us plainly that it was God's will for this to happen. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The Bible is very clear, and it is very simple. The faithful Son of God suffered as a substitute for you and for me. 